Good evening, everyone. Okay. Thank you for joining or for listening, participating. Tonight we have, hopefully with Hashem's help, an exciting class. Um, tonight's class was sponsored by she and Ariella Bistamsky. This is honor in honor of their granddaughter's bas mitzvah, Kayla Zalmanov. Big, big, big mazel tov to them. It's a nachas from her, from all the other grandchildren, and future grandchildren, and everyone. And nachas from the children and the grandchildren. Big mazel tov to the parents, Bunya and Shmulek Zalmanov. Mazel tov and mazel tov. They should raise her in good health. Continue to raise her in good health. Yep, and all the other brachas to you and your family and all that is needed. All right, Chaim. So this week we entered into this, um, what was it? Already over a week ago. We're in the three weeks. Um, this week, Friday, is going to be Rosh Chodesh. And this past Shabbos, we blessed the new month, which is the month of, the month of Ov. Um, generally a, a difficult month to enter, but yet um, we know that it's going to flip. Uh, Bashkacha Pratis, we learned there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a daily um, Maimonides study, Rambam study, and Hashem made that we study the laws of Tainus, the laws of fasts um, this week, and today we lost, we, we studied the last chapter of the laws of fasts, which deals with Tisha B'Av and all the days, and the last law Talks about how these all the fast days will be transformed. Not only will they be canceled, but they will be transformed to great to great holidays, and they will be the biggest holidays of all. So, of the month of of, which is the darkest month of the Jewish year, also has hidden in it the potential, not just the potential; it will be, as we know that in the month of of, it's Mashiach's birthday. And because um, Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av, so it's an incredible, incredible, dynamic, powerful month. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the month of Av and about the significance of um, it's being called Menachem Av and its connection to this week's Torah portion. This week is another great thing. This Shabbos, we're going to conclude the book of Bamidbar, which is the book of Numbers. In the, and we read a double portion. So whenever you read a double portion, it's already a greater Shabbos because you get a double portion of Torah. It's not just longer. It's a greater portion. It's double. Why is it double? Because the very fact that other years you read only one, that means that you're getting a double serving because one parsha would have sufficed to be the serving for the Shabbos. It's like you got two plates of chalant. This was like a double, but this is not chalant. This is is pure this is Torah, doesn't get higher than this. And in addition to that, we're finishing a book. So when you finish a sefer, it's an extra intense, intense blessing. As we know, we say, chazak, chazak, v'niz chazik. So it's an extra special, great job. Um, so we have to prepare. And let's see. We know that the parshas of the week are connected to the times that when they come out. That means that even though the parsha what we are reading seems to be, you know, fall out in different times of the years randomly, what do I mean randomly? Because the reason we read them is because we just have to divide the Torah into kind of equal portions. So it's divided into 53, 
the Torah portions, 53, 54, whatever the count is. And we start on Sukkot, on Simchas Torah, we read the beginning, and then we go through the year. So whatever will follow. Um, yet, if by divinely ordained, uh, these, the certain parsha we read on Hanukkah, certain parsha we read on Purim, certain parsha we read Pesach season, certain parshas we read during the time of Sefirah to Omer, the counting of the Omer, different times of the year, different parshas is a sign that there is an intrinsic lesson and connection to the parsha with that which we are reading. So we need to find what is the connection of these two Torah portions, Matos and Masai, to uh, this particular time. Now, the time in general is the three weeks, but more in particular, it's the it's the 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 latter part of the three weeks, because when Matos and Masai are together, doesn't always come out together, as we mentioned earlier. When it is together, we always read it either in the Shabbos that we bless the month of Av, or the Shabbos is already within the month of Av. This year, it's going to be the second day of Av. That means that the double portion, Matois Masai, and the lesson that we find in both of them pertain not just to the period of the three weeks, but particularly to the month of Av. So let's take a little bit of a look into the month of Av and see. So we always look at the name. Av means father. But we also know that, so again, this is the fifth month in the year, and it's called father, Av. We also know that we add another name to the month, meaning even though the the essential name of the month is Av, just two letters, Aleph, Beis, yet the way it is the custom for the Jewish people to refer to this month is the month of Menachem of. And if we, which means comfort. Menachem means comfort, of means father. So comforting the father. That's that's actually the meaning of it. Menachem of. Now, um, it can be read and understood as the father comforts or comforting the father. So we'll see, we'll, we'll discuss that. That is Menachem of. Now, even though Menachem seems to be just a, a, an addition, but halachically, an interesting thing, in the laws of divorces, a get, there is very, very important to writing the correct, a, a divorce is a very, very, very powerful document. Obviously, it's going to undo a marriage, which obviously generally is, you know, a very, very great heartbreak. When it's needed, it's needed. But the fact that it can undo and change, uh, so it's a very very powerful uh, change, a, 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 a relationship, which as long as the relationship is there, this woman is a married woman. And afterwards she's free, it means, and her status changes completely. Um, and it can lead to life and death uh, issues. So it, it, it is a very powerful document. It has to be written accurately. The document has to be written directly. And over there, the laws of how you spell names are very important. So in Jewish law, whenever it comes to when a baby is born and a name and a name is uh, and we have it and you, you want a name after a grandmother or after whatever. And maybe it's not such a common name and you're trying to research you know, how do you spell the name? Someone recently wanted to, you know, uh, someone's parent passed away. They needed it for the uh, tombstone. And it was a Yiddish name. And we were doing research. How do you spell this name? Because Yiddish, you know, you can spell certain things different ways. 
So, but where do you look? Where do you find tradition and how the correct Hebrew spelling of a Yiddish name is? So most of the times, the place you look at is the laws of the divorce. Because over there it discusses all men, all men's names and all women's names. In Halach, and there's a Sefer which goes through all the various names. It also discusses the correct spelling and the laws of how you're supposed to write out the date, which date it is. So there's in the Sefer Get Pashat, which is a certain halachic um, 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 uh, a piece of work on the laws of writing a get, which is a divorce. So over there it talks about spelling, the proper spelling or how you're supposed to write this month. So it says over there an interesting thing, that if you wrote, instead of the word of, you just wrote Menachem, it is a kosher get. Even though if you write the wrong date or you you wrote a, a, a name of a month that's not that's not real, it's it's it invalidates to get it's not kosher, can't use it. And if the if the person gave over this document, it 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 didn't it didn't uh, cause the divorce, it didn't sever. But he writes that if you write Menachem, it is valid. Because he says it is so common for people since it's it's a minhag. See, it's again, it's not a a, a a a Talmudic name or it's not a biblical name. Yet, since it is the custom for Jews to call the month Menachem of, even if you just wrote the word Menachem, everybody knows which month you're talking about, and therefore it's kosher. So that just gives you how essential the name Menachem is. Now we need to just so. Obviously, so that comes out that what is the what is the concept of the of the month, not just the month of, which means father, but also menachem. But now we just have to take a step back and still deal with one more issue. Before we're going to start reading into the names, we have to figure out if of really means father. Why am I saying that of in Hebrew means father without a question? But the problem is that all the names of the months are not really Hebrew words. They're not Hebrew words. They are words that the Jerusalem Talmud tells us that all the names of the of of the Jewish months are names that came up with the Jewish people when the Jews came back from the Babylonian exile. That means for close to the first thousand years of Jewish um, observance of Jews living already with the Torah, they didn't refer to the months by the names that we know now. Now is the month of Tammuz. No one called it Tammuz. They called it the fourth month. The next month they called the fifth month. The, num- the months had numbers. And they went till 12. Or if it was a leap year, they went to 13. And then it would start again, one, two, three. They didn't have these names. The names of the months started in the beginning of the second temple era. Um, actually... Some of those names you find already mentioned in the end of the first temple era. Because you find them already mentioned, not exactly in the end of the first, no, during the exile itself. Those, we find it in scripture, we find it in Tanakh. But we only find them in the later books of the Tanakh. Daniel has names. Megillas Esther refers to the month of Teves, refers to the month, I think, of Nisan. Names these various different months. Sivan mentions the month of Sivan. Um, I think Nisan, Sivan, and Adar, of course. 
and uh, Teves, I know, is mentioned. So the four months for sure mentioned in Megillah Esther. And so in other, in other books, but only those that are there in the time when the Jews were already in exile. But those that were still written during the time in Jeremiah, for instance, you don't have any name, I don't think, any name of, of these months, any mention. He was from the last prophets. Earlier, for sure, you don't have. Because as the Jerusalem Talmud says, the Jews picked up these names in Babylonia. Now, according to some explanations, Bo, the Cheskuni, and Nachmanides, Ramban, all three of them state that the that these months, the names of the months, they are Lishainais Kazdiim. They are the words they they come from the Kazdim. The Kazdim are the Babylonians. Means they're not even Hebrew words. Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. These have these are these these are like these are words from a different language. They got attached to the Jewish months. Now the Nachmanides uses the term Parsiim. They're Persian in origin. Others say Bavliim, whatever. Bavliim or Persian. Persian or Babylonian. They're pretty close to each other. Today's days are Iran, Iraq. It's from that area. According to that, would we in any way have any legitimacy to even talk about the month and discuss its Hebrew, uh, its Hebrew, uh, its Hebrew meaning? It's significant. In other words, is there anything to actually give a whole class now, which we're going to talk about Menachem of, because we're going to be explaining the essence of the month, and we're going to look at it as of meaning father, and Menachem relating to that. In context of a Hebrew month, is not even meaning father, because it's not a, it, it had nothing to do with that. It, these are, it means something in the Persian or Babylonian language. So the, the the answer to that is is that we cannot say that it is totally and completely foreign languages. It has nothing to do with Hebrew, because first of all, you can argue that on all the names, but of means father. You can say Sivan. What does Sivan mean? It doesn't really, it doesn't really have a meaning. Shvat. No, Shvat. You can say Shev comes from the word Shevet. Okay, Adar. These are not. These are word. These are meaningless words in Hebrew. Teves, meaningless. Tishrei, meaningless in Hebrew. But we do find that the sages, the midrash, explains these names with Hebrew context. All the way back in the midrash, there's a psikta that says that why is the first month called Nisan? Because Nisan has the word Nes in it. And nace means miracle. And that's when miracles happen to the Jewish people. So that's why it's called Nisan. So even though the name Nisan wouldn't, according to all those that I mentioned earlier, Eben Ezra, Ramban, Cheskuni, all of them is not, because it's a Persian name or a Babylonian name, yet from the very fact that the rabbis went and explained the name with with um with um, um, Hebrew significance means that somehow we could read a little deeper into these names even in the Hebrew perspective. Another one that is obviously an indication for that that we don't find so early back in the sages, but we do find that 
already from the early days of the Rishonim period, uh, going through where we find the, the acronyms for Elul. Who doesn't know the acronym for the month Elul? Ani dodi vedodi li. I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. From here we learn that we're supposed to give extra charity during that time. I mean, we discussed it so many times. There's like four or five acronyms for the month of El. And even though El will say it's not a Hebrew word, yet we, we, we explain it in Hebrew context. And the explanation can that can be as follows. First of all, the Lubavitcher Rebbe wants to offer, the Rebbe wants to offer a, the Rebbe wants to offer a, a thought, a novel thought, that when it says that the months um, are, are, the Rebbe wants to offer a very novel thought, you know, that when it says the months came up from Bavel, the Rebbe wants to suggest different, it's interesting, different than all the Rishonim. He brings what the Rishonim, meaning the early early commentators, say that they are actual from a different language. But the Rebbe wants to say that when it says they, that essentially these are Hebrew words. It's not like these were words from a, from a foreign language. What does the Jerusalem Talmud mean when it says, Olumi Bavel, means the association with that word to be a name of the month that happened in in Bavel. In other words, when we were in Bavel, that's when we began attaching this particular word to be the name of this month. But not that the words themselves are from a different language. Again, that's the Rebbe's own, and then it would make sense that the rabbis, oh, that's what we find in Midrashic uh, discussion, where we have uh, uh, um, um, the rabbis giving Hebrew significance to the months because they could be Hebrew words. That's an interesting take. Or we can say, or we can say, the Rebbe says as follows. Even if we're going to argue that these are literally foreign languages, but we will apply a phenomenal idea that the Shalah HaKadosh says, the Shalah is Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz, who was Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz, not Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz, um, Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, I'm sorry, who was a 16, uh, 17th century uh, Kabbalist, I think, yeah, early 17th century Kabbalist, and he was a, um, so in his books, he discusses the concept that the sages tell us that many some words even in the bible itself even in the Chumash itself the sages say that these are it's not a hebrew word for example the famous one is the word totafos where it talks about filling the boxes that we put on our heads it says it should be totafos now there's no such word totafos what's totafos we don't find anywhere so the sages say it's a combination of two words tat and pat, tat and pat. And the sages say like this, tat in African means two. And pat in, uh, I forgot which other language. Um, I'll tell you over here. Uh, 
In katvi, tat is in this language called katvi. I'm not sure exactly what katvi is. It's a ancient language, means two. And pat, an African, means two. So you have two, two. Totofos, it sounds like two, two. <laughs> so totofos is two and two. From there we learn out that the tefillin has four four compartments. You're not, you're not supposed to put on the head tefillin. You see, on the hand tefillin, it's one box. It has four four paragraphs, but they're all scrolled in one box. But in the head, I think it's all one scroll. But in the head, it's four different scrolls on the head tefillin, and each one in its own compartment, because we say totafos, which is two and two, which is four. So the Shalah says, hold it. What's the Torah? The Torah couldn't find the Hebrew words for it. Shnayim is two. Why do we need, or Arba is four. What's this idea of taking non-Hebrew languages, non-Loshan HaKodesh languages, and putting it in? So the, the Shalah HaKodesh says, it doesn't mean that God was, God forbid, poor on his vocabulary and needed to go lend and borrow words from outside. No, he says. These words, when it says it was in, in different, and we find, by the way, other examples where certain words in the Torah are, are Aramaic. It, they're, 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 they seem to be Aramaic. So the, the explanation he gives is, is that initially everybody spoke the holy tongue. And then God, by the generation of the dispersion, Hashem went and he mixed the tongues. He created all the other languages. And they were all created from the holy tongue. And because they were all created from the holy tongue, certain words from the holy tongue, which is called Lashon HaKodesh, we call it Hebrew, but it's called the holy tongue, certain words of that language made their way into other languages and kind of dropped out of Hebrew. Even though it's still a Hebrew word. It's, from, it's an original word from the holy tongue, but it got lost somehow. It got um, you know, carried off into one of the, into African, into Katvi, into the various different languages. And the Torah goes out and finds these words and brings them back into the Torah. So currently no one in Hebrew language speaks with the Tat and the Pat. But, and you'll, you'll find it in the African and Katvi language, but it's really a holy, it's a holy word from the Holy Tat. It is of the divine language. If that's the case, then we will say like this, even according to those who say that these are Kazdim words or Parsian words, Persian or Babylonian words, it doesn't mean they're essentially those words, they too are Hebrew in essence. And for that reason, we can read into them a spiritual meaning. And the Rebbe, interesting, makes a note to a Sefer called Divrei Torah, from the Minchas Elazar, Rabbi Lazar of Munkach, which I looked it up. It's always great to look things up because if you look things up, you find all the gems and the jewels. Thank God, a couple of months ago, I, I actually bought this book. And today it paid off to buy it because it's just such a beautiful story. The Minchas Elazar lived in the 1930s. I think he passed away right before the war. In 1938 or 1939, I think, Second World War, I think is when he passed away. In any case, he was a great rabbi in Hungary. And he tells a story as follows. That one time there was a Jew uh, from, from that had to run away from 
he says, area that is Poland that was at that time, uh, he called it Russish Poland. It was Russia, Poland. And he had to, meaning, because, you know, the borders of those countries were always, the Slavic countries were always changing. There was always something going on, and here it was like this, and there it was like that, and this is the whole the whole area. That's so what's still going on, the turmoil there with Ukraine and all these countries. Everything was always changing under various different rules back and forth. So at this time, this person had to run away. There was a danger, and he came to a city called Jikiv. My family is related to Jikiv or Hasidim. And there was a great rabbi, the son of Reb Naftali of Rapshitz, and his name was Reb Eliezer of Jikiv, a very, very holy, godly Kabbalist, a very, very high spiritual, great Hasidic master. It was on Rosh Hashanah, and the, the great Sadik was saying Torah, and he gave a whole Kabbalistic interpretation on a word that they would call the chalas, the special breads, the challah, that they would use on on Rosh Hashanah. They were around challah. In their language, they called it radish. I mean, it's a round chalas. They had a special name for it called radish. In in in, I don't know what language it was, but the, the Yiddish that they spoke, and this was the the term that they used for these for these chalas. So he was explaining all kinds of Kabbalistic concepts and gematria and stuff, all reading into the word radish. This fellow who was not a Jikiv or Hasid, he came from the Polish Hasidim, he came from, even Jikiv is also Poland, but it's the Galicia part. And this was the Polish, Polish. And he came from Hasidim of Gur, and he thought it was a little weird because he said, because he wasn't giving Torah on a Hebrew word. He was giving all kinds of gematria and spiritual explanations into, into um, like a lot of people laughed when I was giving all kinds of Kabbalistic readings into Donald Trump. In gematria and this and that. <laughs> so people thought, you're, you're insane. He's, he's, you know, what, what, what kind of, well, you know, what, what's going on? And I, and, and I did it not only with him, but with, with some other interesting things. So this guy thought it was like insane. So when he came back and he came to the Chidushe Harim, who was the Ger Rebbe, and he related what he saw in Jikiv and what he heard in Jikiv on Rosh Hashanah. And he related how the Rebbe, this holy Jew said, and he kind of laughed at it. And he basically said, he said, and, what would, and what's going to be with the Jews who call these round chalas with a different name? You know, it was only in that area where they referred to it that way because they spoke one language and those who call it differently, what's with them? So the Chedushe Harim, the great uh, Rebbe of Ger, said to him, oh, so basically according to you, you're, you're, you're invalidating the tefillin as well. You're questioning the tefillin as well. So you didn't know what he's talking about. He said, well, the Talmud tells us that the reason we know that you're supposed to have four sections in the tefillin is because the word totafos means... In 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 Katfi it's two, and in African it's two, and the Talmud is 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 reading in and learning, deriving laws from other languages. So he basically was saying, you know, if you can make fun of that, then you can make fun of essential core laws of 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 of, of Torah. And obviously, we know that the Tefillin is exactly the way God wants it, and this is the way it is. So that's true about these things as well. Anyways, that's the idea. So this is all just an introduction to the concept of Menachem Av.
So whatever what, what we what what where we are where, where we are coming to is that the month of means father. And then even in other words, notwithstanding what of might mean in a different language, in Hebrew it means father, and therefore this month means father. But as we said earlier, the month is not just called father, the month is also called Menachem. So that teaches us that we need to read both of them together. What does Menachem mean? Comfort. So how do we read this Menachem of? The simple meaning of then Menachem of means comforting the father. Not the father comforts, because if it would mean the father comforting, it would have been of Menachem. We should have called it that way. Of Menachem, the father will comfort. That would mean that God, who's the father, is comforting us. But the fact that we call it Menachem of means that we comfort the father. Which is something that needs some understanding. Number one, how can we comfort the father? God has to comfort us. How can we comfort Hashem? Who are we to comfort God? How do we comfort him? And what's with us? That's the other question. Of, we know, is a, a month of horror, of suffering, of the exile, of all pain and all agony and all tsaris and all suffering, both in the global scale, but primarily for the blood-soaked history of the Jewish people. So what does it mean, Menachem, of the comforting of the Father? Now, the fact that God needs comforting and that he's pained by the exile, yeah, that's... That's something that we that we know. The sages tell us in Tractate Brachis, right in the beginning of the Talmud, that um, one of the great rabbis once stopped off to pray and he went into a desolate building, a churva, a, a collapse, and he went to pray there. And when he was there, he heard a heavenly voice crying like a yona, I think it says, weeping like a, but it sounded like a bird cry, wailing. And um, and he heard, and what was it saying? Woe to a father whose children, the words were, let me tell you exactly. Woe to the father, Shehigles Banov, who, who exiled his children. So even though God is the one who ultimately exiled us from the land, but it hurts him at least as much as it hurts us. And maybe, maybe much more. And therefore, he's in a lot of pain. And therefore, God needs comforting. So Menachem of means the month to comfort the father. Actually, I'll share with you something very special. There's a sefer called Avodas Yisrael from the great Hasidic master, the Kajnitzer Magid. And he writes and he brings that um, this parsha Masay, is always the remember I said there's two parshiyas we oh but Masa he's talking about the second one, in which we read always during this time it says a very interesting thing. How many Masa it talks about the 42 journeys of the Jewish people. He says the number 42 is connected to this time because the three weeks of mourning if have night and day. So if you have 21 days which include day and night, and then you times it by two, the night and the day. So what do you get? 21 and 21 is 42. So really it's the, and he says that in these 42, in these 21 days, 
we all journey through 42 encampments. We all know the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, where the Baal Shem Tov says that our life is a journey of the 42 uh, encampments and journeys. Every single one of us, every soul on earth makes 42 different trips or goes and stops and goes and traps, has different journeys in its life. But he says that it's every three, in, in, the, in the summertime, during this three weeks, is a time of these journeys. Exile is considered a journey. So it, it kind, of, kind of connects. Um, but then he adds something really, really, really powerful. He says, even though the time causes for a person to be sad and causes a person to sigh on the destruction of the house of God, I'm, I'm literally reading, I'm just not reading it in Hebrew, I'm just giving you the English translation. He says, nevertheless, one has to strengthen themselves and purify their heart to serve Hashem with Torah, by Torah study, and with prayer, with joy. And particularly at the time of when we're singing the various different songs during the prayer, the songs of praise of God. And he says, to explain this, I will give you an, an analogy. It is the way of a king of flesh and blood who has lots of celebration going on around him. There's orchestras and, orchestras and musicians and, and all kinds of shows and entertainment and all kinds of things. And they play with drums and with and various different dancers and, and, and uh, harps and flutes and the like. He says, no, when the king is in a good mood and is anyways in a very happy state of mind, he says, you don't really need so much these, these choirs and all these that can that can that can entertain with their with their exquisite voice and their types of singing, because he's in a good state, he's in a happy spirit. However, he says when the king suddenly goes into a state of melancholiness and of sadness because of something that had happened to him, God forbid, was a tragedy in the family, or there was something terrible that took place, which causes the king to be kind of to be down. He says, that's the time that particularly you have to call those who can play on, on the harps and they should sing and they should excite the king so that they can, they can bring gladness to his heart and to, and to bring back the smile to his face, to, to lift up his spirits. And he says the same is also regarding God. Definitely God has the most exquisite choirs and musicians that are singing his praises, the angelic Beings above that are singing Hashem all, all day long, and it, the sounds of their of their songs are just <laughs> angelic. That's who they are, right? And Buddy says that's true all the time. But the time when, but what that particularly, and the time of exile, when there is sadness, he says, outside there is sadness, meaning externally there is a certain down during this period of time. But he says an amazing thing. Those people who really, really, really care for the king, those who really, really love him, they need to go past their anguish and their sadness and their pain and lift themselves out of this gloominess and go in, 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 because they know that the king needs them to bring joy into his heart. It's amazing teaching. And to go and, and bring Simcha to Hashem and say to him, you are our king forever. And even now, you will be king forever. Everything is not before you. And eventually, 
the saviors will go up on Mount on Hard Sion, and everybody will come serve you, and they will give you the, in other words, to speak about Mashiach, and to delight God about the coming of Mashiach. By the way, that's another reason why we should talk about Mashiach all day long, because God is very happy when we talk about Mashiach. It literally lifts up Hashem's spirit. This is the this is the Rabbi Yisrael of Kajnitz. He's the third generation Hasidic master. And the greatest of the great. And he's describing here how we're supposed to bring comfort to our father. And even if it means, when he was writing this, Jews lived in the worst kind of persecutions. So when you got to this particular time of the year, you had so much to justify sadness, depression, depression, and a heavy heart. But he says it requires a person to rise above that all and to be and to pray with joy and with happiness in order to, to comfort the father. All right. And then he brings another teaching from them from the from the Ms. Richard Maggot. Really cool stuff. Very special. Very, very I'm not gonna say cool. Let's just say very, very, very heartwarming. That's what it is. All right. So Menachem of means to comfort the father. And herein lies the connection to this to this Torah portion, Matos and Masa. What is the what is the what is the connection? Because what 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 we're what we are focusing then, what we are now focusing during this time is that notwithstanding the fact, notwithstanding the fact that we have our own sorrow. And we need our own comfort, yet what's on our mind is the comforting of the Father. Now that theme is seen in both Parshas Matris and Parshas Masse, meaning to say that the exile is not just the exile and the and the and the and the our our pains and our aches are not just our pains and our aches, they're also God's pains and aches. We see them both in the Matos and the Parshas Mas. So in the story of Parshas Matos, which is the first Torah portion, right in the beginning, after it talks about the laws of vows, the opening of the parsha talks about the laws of making a vow. Later on, we have the story that God tells Moshe that he should gather an army of young Jewish men. And they should go take vengeance against the Midianites. Because the Midianites caused the Jewish people to sin. So the Jewish people went and amassed a 12,000 men army. And actually they decimated the entire Midian. That's what the Torah is. So God calls that war, go take the vengeance of Israel. That's what he tells Moshe. Go take the vengeance of Israel. However... When Moshe actually uh, assembles the army and dispatches them, Moshe didn't go to war. Moshe sent Elazar, the high priest. His brother Aaron had passed away already. This is, the, this is his nephew. When he sends him out with the armies, together with Pinchas, Moshe says, nikmas Hashem, go take the vengeance of God. So the Midrash and Rashi brings it, takes note. Moshe seems to be changing. God said, go take the vengeance of the Jewish people. Why the vengeance of the Jewish people? Because as a result of the sin, what happened? 
24,000 Jewish men died in a plague. That's a whole lot of people. 24,000 like this. Plus, many of them were put to death by the courts. So there was a massive, massive uh, um, um, tragedy and a horrific situation. And they caused it. So God said, go take the revenge for the Jewish people. Um, but Moshe turns it. And Moshe says, the revenge of God. So the Sifri, which is a Midrash, the Sifri says as follows. Um Amalahem Moshe says to them, Loi nikmas basavradam, you're not taking the revenge of of the flesh and blood. You're not taking revenge, a human revenge. You're going out to take the revenge of the one who said and the world came into being. In other words, it's God's vengeance. Because when they hurt the Jewish people, they're hurting God. And therefore, when you're going to fight, you're actually going to fight to those who actually stabbed God in the heart, God forbid. So for those who did that, you're going to take revenge. What do we see from here? The exile of Israel, the suffering of Israel, is the suffering of Hashem. That's in Pashas Matos. In Pashas Masai, there is, in the end of the Torah portion, it talks about um, cities of refuge, which have to be set aside just in case someone accidentally or unintentionally brings about the death of another person. So these people, they're not put to death because they didn't do it intentionally, but they still need a atonement, and they have to run to a city of protection. And then the verse talks about that in the land of Israel, you should make sure that blood should not be cheap, and that God forbid if someone kills someone, they're brought, they're held accountable. If they did it on purpose, they're put to death, and if they did it unintentionally, they should go pay by by their by their time that they have to be in. Basically, it would be similar to what we call manslaughter. It wasn't intentional murder, but as a result of that, someone died. There is some kind of a repercussion to that. So the verse says, God concludes, and He says. Do not defile the land that I dwell amongst them. The land, the land of Israel can't be defiled. And if unspilled, if spilled blood will go un, unattended to and un, 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 you know, unnoticed, then that's going to defile the land. So the Midrash says, um, over here, also, this is a Zafri that I dwell amongst them. Chaviv and Yisrael. How precious are the Jewish people. Even when they are defiled, the Shechina, the divine presence, never leaves them. So God is saying, even, don't defile the land that I am dwelling there. That means I will dwell there even if you defile it. I'm there no matter what. Because the Jewish people are there. I, I can't leave them. So if, if um, the land gets defiled, you're defiling the land while I am there, and that's very uncomfortable for me. So you're causing me to live in a defiled place. So therefore, don't do that. But the Midrash says, take a look how precious. Because really, if it's defiled, 
Okay, so God has enough real estate to go to. He go away from here, go to move somewhere else. But he can't do that because the Jewish people are here. So he's going to, always going to be with them. And then the Midrash continues. Reb Nassim Oimer, Reb Nassim says, Chavivim Yisrael, the Jewish people are so precious. Wherever they go, the Shekhinah goes along with them. They went to Egypt, the Shekhinah is with them. They went to Babylonia, the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence is with them. They went to Persia, the Shekhinah is with them. He brings another verse for that. And they went to Edom, which is the current exile. They came to America, the Shekhinah is with them. They were in Spain in the, 14, in the 1300s, the 1200s. Shekhinah was this then. They were in Poland. They were in Russia. In all these years, they were in Morocco. In all various, wherever the Jewish people were, God was with them. Okay. When they return, the Shekhinah is with them. So what do you see in Parshas Masai as well? That the exile doesn't only impact the Jewish people, it impacts God. And therefore, for that sake, God needs comfort, and we need comfort. And since, so therefore, the month could have been called Menachem of, which means comforting the father, or Menachem Banim, comforting the children. We call it Menachem of because God is, God is God. And therefore, his comfort to comfort him takes precedence. And therefore, it's called Menachem of. That's the explanation. The question over here, however, is, as I mentioned earlier, the wound of exile and the and the pain that it, it brings along is basically the pain that is includes all pain. It includes all all suffering. It goes all heartbreak. So how is it that we completely, in the name of the month in which we talk about comfort, there is only the comforting of Hashem, there is not the comforting of the people. Now, you would say, or could say, as I mentioned earlier, I'm just going to... We, we might argue and we might say that, as I mentioned, you know, God takes priority. God's pain is, is God. And that should be on the top of our mind more than our own pain and our own suffering. That is true. However, is that that is true by very, very righteous people. There are very holy people who are so devoted and they are so dedicated and they are so sensitive to Hashem that to them, the only thing that matters is Hashem and His state. In other words, they're in pain and their own suffering, they don't even feel. And even when they're going through something very, very difficult and very, very hard, what bothers them and what hurts them is only God's suffering. As it is explained that there are certain tzaddikim, certain righteous people, the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, the Shneir Zalman of Liadi talks about the people that are called B'nai Aliyah. Who are the B'nai Aliyah? These are people which the Zohar refers to as people whose entire service is utterly selfless. 
meaning all a lifetime of devotion, of service, of sacrifice, and they don't even have any wish for one tiny bit of something to gain out of it. It's only fashion. The Zohar says that the, who's, who's someone like that? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe served God with such selflessness that he didn't care at all about himself, and it was only God. Not even the bliss and the ecstasy that he would achieve by coming close to God. Coming close to Hashem, especially on the levels of Moshe Rabbeinu, is extraordinarily thrilling and unbelievably pleasurable. And yet to Moshe, that was absolutely meaningless. And the Zohar gives an example. It's an example to a child who loves his parents so much that gives himself over to die just for their safety and for for his parents to be well. Obviously, that's a very high level. There's not one bit of self-interest. So such kind of tzaddikim, there are such people whose love for God is infinite and boundless and utterly transcends any personal gain. But there are very few. So to these people, you can say, Menachem of, the comfort of the Father, is when it comes to three weeks, there's nothing else in their mind but one thing. Like we said before from the Sefer Avodos Yisrael, he was probably one of these types of tzaddikim. So he says, don't sit there and wallow in your pain and your misery. Grab your violin and run in before the king and play something really happy to make the king happy. Oh, your family is in poverty. The Cossacks are coming. The, 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 the children are sick. This one died. That one has this problem. That one. The, the most important thing is God is in pain. Let's try to alleviate the pain. So these are these levels of tzaddikim who can completely <coughs> transcend themselves. But the question is, what's with regular people who are not on that level? To say Menachem of that the only thing is my only concern is that my father should be comforted. At the time when we have so much to cry about our own history, our own holocausts, and our own sufferings, we to take it as perhaps to to expand the question, we might argue and say. There are people that are not on such a high level. That their service of Hashem has no personal motive at all. It's all for God. They're not on such a high level. They're on a lesser level. But at least they're on a level where spirituality is their main objective in their life. Their main concern is their soul and their spiritual condition. Means, means their soul and their spiritual well-being is far more important to them than their than the body and the material and then their material well-being and the aches and their pains of their physical body. To them, if there is a, a situation where they cannot do a mitzvah, it hurts them so much more than if they are in a situation where they can't they don't have food to eat. They missed the dinner, they missed two days of eating, will not bother them not even close to as much as it will bother them if, God forbid, they don't have a pyrethrill 
and they couldn't put tefillah for two days. That will make them sicker and make them more aggravated and in greater pain than the fact that they can't that they that they can't eat for two days because their spirit is more important to them than their body. People like that during the time of when when it comes the month of of these three weeks where we are considering the darkness of exile we're considering the 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 the, the again we're commemorating the time of 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 the of the exile so the exile impacted us on two levels the exile impacted us materially again as we discussed there was suffering in the world a lot of suffering but on a on, on a more important level at least to these individuals exile brought a distance between god and israel even though we said god is with us but he's with us in a hidden way so in the revealed relationship between us and god there is a great great disconnect and therefore, we cannot achieve a level of connection, a level of attachment, and a level of clarity in the divine when there's no temple. Things are very blurry. Our, it's almost like our souls are numb. We're clogged. We're blinded. Our spiritual eyes are blinded. We don't see godliness. We don't hear all the godliness. And we can't feel godliness. So prayer is dull. Torah study is superficial it's lacking the depth it's lacking the brilliance we say it in davening because we don't have a base on mikdash we're not able to go we can't go up to the the holy temple to bow down okay so you can't bow down in the temple bow down in your in your backyard bow down in your local shtibol your local shul the answer is the real meaning of bowing is to experience the experience of the divine, of, of God's kingship, of God's power in such a strong way that it knocks you off your feet. It knocks you flat. But for that, God has to be very vivid. And we don't have the sensors to feel that today. So it's not about physically bowing. It's the spiritual experience where you lose yourself in the infinite presence of God and you become nothing which was a very, very real experience, we don't have it today. So to those people that that is so, that that is the real problem. So we can say that Menachem of, they need to comfort their father. He's not referring to God. It's referring to the own God that's inside of us. Because we all have a little piece of God inside of us. Our own soul is the godliness in us. Like we say, Hashem Elokeinu. A lot of times it's explained in Hasidic teachings. Elokeinu means our godliness. So of doesn't have to mean God as the big, the Hashem as an ent- as Hashem, the cosmic God. It can mean the peace of God that's with inside of us. And that element, the comforting of that, comforting the the godly soul that is aching and 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 and, and in such duress and in such in such pain and feels so isolated during the time of exile, that needs comforting more than our physical aches and pains. Oh, so now we added a whole new category of people 
who can identify with the name Menachem of. Because once you take care of this, you've taken care of 95% of their problem. 95 of the, the, the of uh, percent of the morning of exile has nothing to do with not being able to pay your bills. Has nothing to do with you know the 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 illnesses and the and the challenges in health and the other darknesses of exile. Ninety-five percent of it to these people is that the fact that they cannot pray the way they should pray. They don't have the enlightenment of Torah there the way they want. They don't. They can't connect to Hashem. So to these people as well, Menachem of is a good name. Comfort your father, comforting your soul. How many more percent of people? Okay, let's add another. The word tzaddikim we said, whose whose righteousness is so that they don't even think about, they transcend even their soul. Stand. Those are what we spoke about in the beginning. People who don't even care about their own spirituality. The only thing that matters to them is God's interest in this world. That's a very sublime love. That's maybe a uh, you know, uh, not even a percent of a percent of how many people there are like that. Very few. And then we'll say maybe there's another 15% of Jews, 20%, 25% of Jewish, of the Jewish population. Or maybe, again, today's days, we don't even know. It's such a, you know, that really their spiritual lives are more important to them than their physical life. But for the rest of the Jewish people, who to them... You know, not being able to pay their bills is what hurts them more. To them, the fact that there is illness in this world, to them that, that, God forbid, if they have a physical ailment, that they are ill, or they have some other trouble element, which is all a symptom of exile, because when Mashiach will come, all illness will be gone. All death will be removed from the world. There won't be any lacking. There won't be any hunger. There won't be any war. There won't be. What's with the Jews in, in the Ukraine? who this year are suffering horrifically because of, because of the war that's going on over there. And what's with the people who sadly have very close relatives in the hospital, stricken with horrible illnesses and things like that. They're painting the pain of exile in a very material, physical way. And that, and that pain hurts. And if that pain hurts, so... To say that the only concern is that God or that my soul should be happy. But what's with, I mean, what's with the practical suffering and pain, which we are hoping, when we hope for Mashiach, we are thinking about these aches and pains to go away. Some rabbis will dismiss it. Some rabbis will say, you shouldn't want Mashiach for that that's a very cheap way to want Mashiach. That's, that's not the right way to want for Mashiach. You're wanting Mashiach for all the wrong reasons. You should be a little bit more refined and a little bit more elevated and a little bit more sensitive to want Mashiach for something spiritual. There are rabbis that will write it off immediately. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe is not that type. No, not at all. He feels the Jewish people. And he says there's so many Jews who want Mashiach because they have a backache and their hips are hurting them or this is hurting them or they can't make an ends meet and they're suffering because of all kinds of other things. And in general, the world is in pain. 
And this is what tears at their hearts during the three weeks. This is what's weighing heavily on them. People are getting hurt. Terrorism in Israel, so-and-so, all kinds of stuff. Crime. Over here we have inflation now. It's hurting. It's hurting many people. Thank God, those who can afford, but those that are needing to literally cut down on food because of inflation, because of the prices of food being so high, these things really are, are hurting people. People with large families who don't make such a living, they are in pain because of this. And we want Mashiach, and we want we want the comfort. And the question is, the name of the month, which is supposed to be, hopefully, we're hoping for the comfort, doesn't seem to be addressing them at all. It's only Menachem Av. It's, so in a sense, they shouldn't call the month Menachem Av. You see, who should call the month Menachem Av? Only some people who are very idealistic. But for most Jews, let's find another name. Let's find a name that speaks more about consolation of our pains. Because that's what we care about. It would be nice if we all cared about only our spiritual lives. But for most of us, when we have a problem and we're down, it's because there is some kind of something pressing on our hearts in our own in our own practical down-to-earth life? It's a good question. Well, the Rebbe says this question can be extended to something else. Not only regarding prayer. I'm sorry, not only regarding comfort in the month of love. Actually regarding prayer. What is the right attitude in prayer? What, the law is, Rambam says, that the real commandment to pray is not daily prayer. The real true biblical commandment to pray is whenever you have a situation where you feel you're lacking something and you need help, you're supposed to turn to God. You're not feeling well. You wake up in the morning. You have a headache. You're not feeling well. Lift your eyes up to God and say, God, I don't like the way I feel now. Please make me feel better. Then you fulfilled your commandment of prayer. You received the bill. You don't know how to pay it. Or your, or your business is going a little down south and you're feeling a little bit the stress of things, lift your eyes up to God and say, God, I need help. Please send blessing in my, in my business. That's the mitzvah of prayer. Now there is a holy teaching from the great and saintly second generation Hasidic master, actually the Rebbe of all the Rebbes, Rebbe Doiv uh, Ber, the Magid of Mizrich, where he says, that there is a teaching the sages say, It is the beginning of um, the fifth chapter in Tractate Brochus, the first chapter. In the Mishnah it says, We do not get up to pray, only in the state of mind of a, simply translated, it means a heavy head, a heaviness of the head. But obviously it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? See, the sages are talking about what should be your, your, your approach when you're, and what state of mind should a person go into prayer? So the tr- sages are saying, don't do it out of laughter, out of frivolousness. You're standing over, the, you're, in a, you're at a party and you're laughing. There's a comedian there and you're like, you're literally, you're like in a very, 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 you know, um, you know, state of, 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 frivolousness, and then someone says, oh, it's mincha time. 
Okay, let's go wash our hands. Dava Mincha. So you stand up, you Dava Mincha. You're not supposed to pray like that. It's disrespectful to come to God because you're not in the zone. You're supposed to go off to the side and get into a serious mindset. You're walking into the palace. You're going to speak to God, the king of all kings. So you straighten yourself up, you prepare yourself mentally, and then you go your present. Rashi says it means a sense of humility. You have to bring yourself to a, a humble state, and then you can pray. Okay? Now comes the Hasidic interpretation by the, by the, the Magid of Mezrich. He says, it's not just talking about attitude. It's talking about what's concerning you in prayer. An amazing teaching. He says, when you're starting to daven, when you're praying to God, and you're praying because something hurts you, God forbid, let's say God forbid you got a, not such a good diagnosis from the doctor, and you're worried, and you're concerned, and you really, really are going to pray, and you're going to literally break down crying in prayer because you're really scared, and you're really going to weep and cry because you're in a situation the Mizrich and Magid, simply, before we, let's see, soon we'll learn the Blabavitcher Rebbe's interpretation. Because the Rebbe, you know, changes everything. But they, if you learn the raw teaching of the holy Mizrich, Magid of Mizrich, he says, stop for a second. Don't pray because you're suffering. What you should do is like this. Recognize and understand that inside of you, inside your body that is now being threatened by, God forbid, a disease, by some kind of an ailment that's scaring you. Stop for a moment and recognize your body is not just a physical entity. Your your body is a host to a spiritual soul. Not just a spiritual soul, a soul that contains a spark of God. So this body is a, is a, a vessel for a divine spark. Therefore, the issue of your body is not just your issue. It's the issue of the divine spark. And the divine spark being that it's a spark of the divine. It's a spark of God. So it's God's pain. In other words, if there's something lacking in your body health, it's really, really, really a lack. Ultimately, some kind of a lacking in your soul source. In the spiritual work levels above, at the very, very, very highest places, There is some blemish. There's something lacking. So when you're praying, don't pray for what's happening down here. Pray for the deficiency that's all the way up there in the spiritual source. And that's the meaning he says, don't pray. Only because of the heaviness that's in the rosh. Rosh means in the head of heads, in the divine head and divine source. We are the feet. We are the bottom, bottom, bottom of the feet of existence. So when the feet is, is, is in pain, it's affecting the head too. When your toe hurts, it also hurts the head. Your head feels it. So there's pain in the head. So pray that the, that the pain in the head should go away. In other words, transcend yourself and think about something much bigger and higher than yourself. Think about God's, God's suffering of so to speak, in this, and pray for them. He says, "What's the?" He says, "Number one, you should do that because that's more important than than your own than your own situation, because this is this is what's really important. Number one, number two. No one can refute that prayer. 
That's such a logical thing. Every time you pray and you ask for something, what do you think? There is gonna, there, there's always the possibility that some, some prosecuting being will come in and say, hey, what are you doing? The guy doesn't deserve it. But if you're not praying because of you, you're praying because you say, God, you have a headache now. And I'm praying because I want your headache to go away. What, what is the prosecuting an angel going to say? No, God, you should have a headache. It's that God pains the pains that we have. So if I am praying because it hurts me that I am hurting. But if I'm not hurting that I am hurting, I'm hurting that you are hurting and I'm praying that you take away my pain so do you don't hurt. So who can, who, who, can, who can make any accusation against that? So the prayer is going to be accepted. Far likelier than the prayer is going to be accepted than if you're davening for your own personal need, which can always be questionable. That's his statement. He, he translates it in actually says in Parshas Vayigash. He says that's the meaning. Vayigash Elov Yehuda. Yehuda is the Jew. He's stepping up to pray. Vayigash means to pray. And he says to Yosef, to Joseph, he says, Be Adaini. What does Be Adaini mean? He says, Be inside me. Adaini is you. Inside me, Adoni is my master. Since there is a piece of you in me, so my issues and my aches and pains are your aches and pains. But I don't care the fact that they're my ache and pain. What hurts me that they're yours. An example of that. The great Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, the great Hasidic master, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, was arrested and uh, was taken into the, uh, the, the in jail there. The, Russian, the Russians arrested him. He lived in the uh, early 1800s. That's some accusations against him. Anyways, so he was there for a while. The end, they managed, he managed to escape the, 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 the prison. Anyways, he translated when he was in jail. He, he said this, while he was there, he said this, Pirish. Everybody knows the verse in chapter 23. Simple translated. Even when I walk in the, in the, in the valley of death, I do not fear evil because you are with me. It's one of the most comforting verses that there are. A person knows wherever I am, I feel so isolated. I feel so threatened. I'm terrified. But when I walk over here, I know what? You are with me. It's like, I know you're with me. Now let's hear how the mind, how the tzaddik thinks. He says, Gam ki elech. The gates are lost. Even when I'm in, in a dungeon over here, in a smelly, putrid Russian prison back in the early 1800s, horrible suffering. I don't fear. I don't fear. Don't bother me. You know what is bad? This is crazy. You know what is bad, he says? You know what does hurt me? He that you are with me. I know, God, you are with me and you're watching me suffer and that's causing you suffer and I can't bear the fact that you're suffering. That's how a tzaddik thinks. And that's what 
Rebelevi, that's what the, 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 the Dove Bear of Mezrich is teaching. He's actually his grandson. Rabbi Saul of Ruzhin was a grandson of the Mezrich Magid, a great grandson. So you see how he passed this on in his genes to his, to, his, to, his, to his descendants. That when you're praying, it shouldn't hurt you that you're aching. It's easy to talk this, but when someone is really in a really, really dark place and a lot of pain, for them to transcend that and not think about their suffering and to truly, wholeheartedly only be bothered by the fact that the divine source of sources is suffering is very, 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 very sublime. But yet, the Magid says that's the way we're supposed to pray. It's like it's like a child who's very ill and the child is so connected to the parent and the child sees the parent suffering and it hurts the child more that the parent is suffering than the child's own physical pain. When a child has that, it's a very, very special child. But here's the same question like we said before. The Mizritcha Magid seems to imply that that's the only way to pray. He doesn't say it's a nice, it's good. He's saying this is instructions, this is the way you should pray. And the question is, how practical is that for most people? The Holy Rujaner? Yeah. Tzadikim of that caliber? Yeah. But regular people? Everyday people? For an ordinary person to be so selfless and to be so in tune with God to the point that their own pain doesn't matter even when it's serious suffering, deep suffering doesn't matter and even if the suffering goes on for days and months or years God forbid and that they don't the only thing that they hurt is God's pain how can that be instructions to Everybody. And the real question, the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe asks the question. Lubavitch Rebbe asks the question. He says, it, it's very idealistic, but it's against, this teaching seems to go against the halacha, which talks about prayer. In Maimonides gives you the plain, simple law. The law is that when you have as we spoke earlier, you have an earache, you have a commandment to pray. Now, when you have a commandment to pray because you have an earache, you're commanded to pray whether every Jew is commanded to pray, or I would say every human being is commanded to pray if they have an earache or they're not, or, or something else, they should pray. And why should they pray? Because their ear is hurting them, and that's what's prompting them to pray. It really, really, really is painful. So that's why they're crying out. You have a tooth that's, that's and, and you're screaming in pain. So you're crying out, God help me. That's a valid prayer. And the Torah says, that's what you need to do. And comes them as Richard Magat says, no, come on, come on. That is too, too coarse. You're, you're so, you're, you're so coarse. You're so into yourself. Get past yourself. Do you know when you're in pain? God is that tooth. It, it relates to your soul, and your soul is a piece of God. So God on high is suffering because of that. Forget about your toothache. Cry out for God. We wish. Nice. 
but you're robbing the rest of the world of prayer. And how can this sublime Hasidic teaching actually be in sync with ordinary halacha, which requires you to pray when you're in pain? So for this, here is where our Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, comes in and blows everything up. <laughs> he, he just takes it to a whole new level. And the Rebbe basically says as follows, something so extraordinary. We have to say, what's his conclusion? That when you're in pain, whether it's an earache, a toothache, being under tremendous financial or a little financial duress and pain, which causing you a lot of pain, feeling lonely, feeling dejected, feeling, um, feeling I don't know, all, all the other problems that could be, God forbid, a family member, a loss of life, all these very, very real things, which cause a person a lot of mental, emotional, and physical pain. And God forbid, God forbid, when someone is suffering from a real serious illness, which is all painful and horribly painful to the body. And they're praying to God like they should be doing, to please, please send them a refuah shalem or send them salvation or send them a miracle, whatever it is. Although they are praying because of the pain in their body, the Rebbe says, that's hand in hand and at that very moment the real inner depth of their prayer is because God is suffering what the Rebbe does is he combines them both he says it's not either or because when you learn the plain simple teaching of the manga it would seem like either you're a soul person or you're a human being either you're a divine being or you're a pick to choose we hope you can be a divine being but the Magid wasn't a Rebbe, the Rebbe says, just for, you know, 3% of the big tzaddikim. The Magid is the leader of the Jewish people. In his day, he was the leader of the Jewish people. So his teaching has to be to everybody. He's not saying that only those who can feel this should pray. He's saying the truth. The truth of every prayer, even one that's coming, my tooth is killing me. God, please help me. The inner cry that's in that prayer is, God, it hurts you so deeply that my tooth is hurting. And it's true. It's not. It's not just the Rebbe trying to be nice to everybody. <laughs> it's really true. Why? Why? So he explains as follows. He says, "As precious as our souls are to God, and therefore our spiritual well-being is very important to God. Believe it or not." Our physical well-being is even more important to God than even our spiritual well-being. The, the, the Rebbe comes and turns the entire Judaism upside down with this teaching. He does it with so many of his other teachings, but this one right over here. Go across the entire YouTube and listen to all the rabbis you want, besides the ones who say the Rebbe's teachings. Ah, the body. The soul is so much more important. The spiritual spiritual holocaust is so much worse than a physical holocaust. And all these things. I'm not saying the Rebbe says it's not true, but the Rebbe says the opposite is also true. 
The physical pain of a physical body touches God even more deeper than all the spiritual darknesses that can reach our soul. And the reason is because God is more connected to your body than he's connected to your soul. Why? How could that be? The soul is eternal. The body is just flesh and blood. Material, physical world is so fleeting. It's so unimportant. Aren't we taught in all of Judaism that we're supposed to, you know, forgo on the body and just dedicate ourselves just to the soul? Yes, but all of Judaism is just in the body. You can't do any Judaism in the soul. When a soul is in heaven, it can't fulfill any mitzvahs. It's the body. And here's the secret. God is is attached to the soul with an intrinsic bond because the soul is a piece of him. It's like the soul is the soul is a piece of God's light. It's an emanation of God. And the body is not an emanation of God. The body is the last thing that God created. It's made out of the, what we might call the cheapest material. The cheapest element of creation is the physical world. It has got the least divine energy in it. It's the le- the less the, the least of everything. Literally, it's like the 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 the, the plastic stuff. It's the uh, like uh, plastic cups, this the, disposable. Physical is disposable. It really is. That's the truth. But here is one secret that Hasidus teaches us. After this whole project is created, God chooses. He makes a choice. We say in in us he has chosen. God chose Israel and God chose the Jewish people to do the mitzvot, to do the commandments. But when he chose the, us to do the commandments, he chose, when he says he chose, the, he chose Israel to do the commandments, the 613 commandments that he gave us, he chose us to do them as body and soul, to do these physical actions. But he chose, he chose first the people that would do these commandments. So what is, what's the big deal? The Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe brings from his great-great-great-grandfather, Rabshner Zalman of Liadi, the choice of God that he chose Israel is not that God chose the souls. Because the souls are holy, they're sparkling, there's no need to choose them. The souls are so, are so, so magnificently beautiful, there's no choice, need to choose them. Real choice, we discussed this many times in many classes, I'm not going to go into it now. Real choice is when you have things that are of equal value and you choose one. And you choose one not because of any reason, but just because you decided that this is what you want. When you are choosing just because you're choosing, nothing else is influencing other than the fact that you're choosing. If I choose between two things and one thing is more useful to me than the other, one thing is beneficial to me inherently and the other one, you know, if I choose, uh, I don't know, I choose a Mercedes over a uh, old uh, a clunker, then I'm not much of a choice. I had to choose it. It's almost like I'm compelled to choose it because this is a good car that's reliable. It's going to get me to where I need to. And this is going to break down 49 times from here to San Francisco. So if I have a choice and I can get this over that, of course, I'm choosing this because this makes me choose it. It's not really, it's not, it's not a choice. Free will. We're talking about free choice. A free choice comes from a place where things are equal and I choose one. So why are you choosing so what may what choose? So you can say it's, it's, it's and then it's just a silly choice. Who cares? This one, that one. No, no, no. But if you are really choosing, you say you're sitting there and you're saying, I can go this way, and I'm choosing this one. That's a choice of your essence. It's not because of your mind. Not your mind is choosing. You are choosing. 
in that sense, the body surpasses the soul. Because the soul, because choice comes from the essence. Only the body has a relationship with God's quintessential essence. The soul is related to the lights, the emanations, the revelations. A soul is a ray, is a, or even more than a ray, it's an emanation. So it's related to the emanations, to the revelations of the divine, not to the substance, the essence of essence. The body is where God chooses, and he says, these bodies I have chosen for Torah and mitzvahs. So he, it's almost like he now identifies and connects himself with the physical body. Now, even though, here's the difference, and this is something that's very important. To me, I mean, this, is a, this needs a lot, a lot of hours of talk. And the reason I'm not going to go into it, number one, we're not here, for, we're not going to be here for another few hours. This class is meant to be a, a little bit of a shorter class than the Thursday night class, for instance. But and also is because we discussed this in many classes and other times at great length. So I'm not going to go over it now, but I'm just going to say that even though it's important to note, the quality that the soul has is intrinsic to the soul. The soul, who it is and what it is, deserves it is. It's made up of, the, of, 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 of very, very holy stuff. It's made up of light and a very bright light and a very, very, very holy light. And very sublime light from the very, very highest, 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 most transcendental levels of, 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 of godliness. The soul is rooted so, so high in the upper, upper realms of the highest sephirot and the highest emanations. And that is the substance of the soul. It's the DNA of the soul. The body's quality is not inside the body. Quite on the contrary, what made the body the choice of God is that the body has no value at all. It has, doesn't have any more value than anything else physical in this world. Talking about the Jewish body that God has chosen. It's the like, same like any other body. It's a physical entity. So there's all kinds of physical beings in the world. And one of them is, are, are, are the bodies, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The physical body, what's the difference? Same, same flesh and bones. There's, not, there's, no, there's nothing there that makes it special in it but precisely that's the point because there was nothing there to make it attractive and he chose it because he chose it so now it's connected to god's very 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 essence higher and you can't even can't even equate it the body's whole the body's is linked up with a with the truth of god that compared to him his very being everything else is meaningless including all the levels of light which includes all the souls and all the angels. It's it's not it's it's incomparable. There's no there's no connection at all. But here's the thing: that quality, the value of it, is in God, not in the body. Because what's the value? Nothing about the body. It's the fact that He chose it. It's almost like He chose nothingness. So is there a quality in the nothingness? The quality is not in the nothing. The nothing is nothing. The quality is in the fact that he chose. But here the Rebbe adds one very important word, which I didn't see anywhere else but in this talk. Exactly these words. He says, once God himself gets involved in something, with, in God's essence, once God's essence is presence, is present, meaning it's it's tapped, it's it's connect, it's now in consideration, the essence of the divine, then on that on that level, nothing else exists. So that completely takes over the body 
and it becomes the identity of the body. In other words, true, the, the reason the body is, is, is important is not because it's not attributed to the body. It's attributed to God. But precisely because it's the God's essence, if he is now choosing it, everything else in the body dissolves, not it doesn't make a difference, you know, the colors, the skin color of the body. It doesn't make a difference, short or tall, pretty or not pretty. Tall. It doesn't make a difference. The only thing that now counts is the fact, you know, everything else dissolves completely and it becomes, wow, this is God's choice. And that becomes its complete identity. The identity now of the body is God's choice. And therefore the body then is nothing other than the divine essence. So now when the tooth hurts, where is it hurting? When there's, God forbid, a, 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 a pain in the body, where is that pain? When there is, God forbid, a horrific diagnosis, where is that? When the body is hungry because there's no food, where is that, where is that hurting? When there's a lack of children? which is part of what God wants the body to have, children and the like, and there is no children, and the person wants children, and they're running from doctor to doctor, from place to place, and the couple can't get pregnant, and, and they can't bring children to the world, and they're devastated. Say It's a physical issue. Yeah. That's way deeper than all the spiritual pain. Not that the spiritual pain is not important. Not that a broken soul is not important. But a broken body registers infinitely higher and deeper than even a broken soul. And for that reason, the Rebbe says that when a person is praying because of a physical ailment, because of a physical pain, their pain is one with what the Magid says, the head of all heads are lacking. Not just some kind of, a, on some spiritual level, God is also involved. No, 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 no. This is touching the very, very core. Stub your toe and it's hurting. We can't even begin to fathom where it's hurting. Now, so the, therefore the Rebbe says, when the Mizritcha Magid says, that when you're praying, you should pray for that. So the Rebbe is saying it's like this. Since in, in any case, when you're, re- the body really feels this. Here's the thing. Because you're, you're, you have, be- because as a Jewish body, you're intrinsically now, your identity is the very, very quintessence of God's, of, God, of, of, of Hashem. So your pain in essence and your cry in essence is that it's hurting above. That's an essence. And as Richard Magid is saying, since this is your essence, think about it for a minute. You're not dealing with trying to feel something that's not true and that it's not your truth. It is your truth because this is who you are. So stop for a moment and let that come into your consciousness as well. Since inherently this is really who you are and what you are, even on the most physical of plane, and not only even, precisely your most physical shell of your existence is so 
deeply rooted. So allow that to permeate your prayer as well, that awareness. And then you're being truthful. Even though you're crying because it hurts, but in that cry, recognize a deeper cry. Recognize that if like the Rebbe talks, explains the same explanation by Hannah, Hannah crying on Rosh Hashanah for children, that even it wasn't personal, it wasn't she wanted children. She knew that you know physical life and having children is is, is God's issue. It's it's touching God at the deepest core. The Rebbe elsewhere in a, in a, in a, in a sicha explains the reason why people are more prone to cry, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, by the parts of Davini that are talking about physical physical matters more than by the discussions and prayer that speak about the most sublime things. And the same idea explains that the reason why simply most people will dismiss it, say, yeah, because we're, we're closer to ourselves than the, the, the divine cosmic plan of God's kingship. So we care more about this. And of course, we're gonna, this is going to touch us deeper, but not in the eyes of, of the Rebbe. The Rebbe, sees, the Rebbe says that's not the reason. It, the reason it touches you deeper is because it is deeper. There's nothing that, 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 is, that, that, that has such existential significance like the well-being of a body. Once we understand that, now we can carry the same thing over to the exile in general. So when it comes the month of Av and we're a little bit down because of because of the of, of exile, and what exile means to us is not the sublime, you know, higher reasons. We're just uncomfortable being here. You know, Jews are already feeling across the world that we don't we we don't we don't want to be we want to be in Jerusalem. Los Angeles is nice, but it's not. It's not. It's not it. We want to be in Jerusalem already. And even if it's not for the divine, the, the, the Shekhinah, even if it's because we don't like what's going on in the neighborhood, we're not so happy with with you know walking at eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock at night. We're feeling a little bit, you know, insecure. We're we're, we're uncomfortable. We're not. Where, where, whatever, whatever the, the issues are. And that's why we're saying, God, you know, put an end to the exile. So we think it's just. So for own personal reasons, we want the exile to end. Not necessarily the most spiritual of reasons. But that itself is God's aching. In other words, God pains the most mundane issues that we that we have are actually what bother him more than anything else. It's, 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 such a, it's such a crazy idea. The most mundane issues that, that, that disturb you on a physical comfort, on a physical level, are more important than the cosmic issues. And therefore, that pain that we have and that discomfort of exile is, is touching very deep and very high. Not, not very on the highest, where it's not possible higher. It's only in the essence. That's the point. On all the levels of, of divine revelation. No, no, no. There, the spiritual matter is a gazillion times more. Rebbe is not dismissing what it says in all the other books. Of course. But that's all in the levels of revelation. 
in the levels of divine revelation, of course, spiritual matters are a million times more important. But when we go deeper than all revelation, and this is the level that Hasidus reveals, this is Messianic Torah, this is only revealed from the eyes of the revelation of Mashiach himself, who can reveal such something like this. This is not in terms of expression, this is in terms of essence. On essence, it's the physical that matters most. The earth that matters most. And therefore, when when we are seeking comfort for our own, that is the comfort of the Father. As when we are wishing for ourselves, Mashiach should come. Like I said in the beginning, not for lofty reasons, not for sublime reasons. It's just because we're uncomfortable in exile anymore. That is the loftiest reason. Because at that over there is where we meet God on the on the highest, most core essential level. And therefore, we really do want the comfort of the Father. It's not a contradiction. The alleviation of Jewish pain and pain of the world is the is the alleviation of the Father. Which brings us back to what we were saying at the beginning of the thing, the beginning of the talk. This also explains why we comfort the Father. Because when we speak Father in many levels, we're referring to the, 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 the divine revelations in the spiritual worlds. And we as physical beings and physical bodies therefore linked up with the essence of God have power to comfort the Father because there is a greater we are deeper even than Father so it's almost like our we are necessary to make him happy and we could make him happy and in this sense we're even higher than him so that we can bring him comfort. That's why the Rebbe told us so much that during the nine days, during the three weeks, we should focus so much, not on the sorrow, but focus so much on trying to make whatever we can to try to make ourselves happy. We have to follow halacha. Halacha says to be, to tone down the joy. But at the same time, Every legitimate possibility of making a seal, like the Rebbe says, you know, you finish a tractate, we make a seal. Because God needs us to make him happy. Because we have impact on him. In many ways, the, 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 us literally, us literally, us little people down here in our physical bodies can, can, can impact on the deepest level the nature of the three weeks. Is God going to be down and depressed or will we give him a, a boost of joy? Because his deepest essence is not revealed in him, it's revealed in us. As weird as that sounds. The sages tell us an interesting thing. The sages say that a child 
that children sometimes can, can, can be greater than their parents. That certain talents, that, that even though a child doesn't have anything in himself or herself, other than what the parents implanted in them, because the parents create the child, and the child is created from the DNA of the parent. So we would think that the child should be less than the parent, or if anything, not, not, not greater than the parent. So you just say that sometimes children, they outdo their parent, and they become, you know, a child is a, a, an amazing prodigy. So the, the, the phrase, the stages used is, the child outdoes the, outdoes the parent. That, that's the simple meaning. Becomes a deeper meaning explained. That this, that the child can be out, outdo the parent, that too is coming from the parent. The fact that the child has become so much greater than the parent, that's really, that's really the parent's talent. It's, really, it's the parent's talent that has, got, that has never been tapped. See, the parent has certain innate talents that for whatever reason the parent never developed, and the child develops them. That means that the child can bring out the parent more than the parent brings out, brings out themselves. And that's the story with us and God. This is, I know this is, this is like wild stuff. We can bring him out more than he brings himself out. We're in our physical bodies now. Because the essence of God is his essence that he himself doesn't tap. This is wild stuff. The essence of God that he himself doesn't tap in his consciousness, in his revealed presence, comes out in us and through us. We're not souls in heaven, souls physically in bodies. And that's why we hold the key to everything. And that takes us back to the Karshnitsa Magad who says, grab the fiddle and make him happy. Change the whole mood of the cosmos. You know, the three weeks could be a time of great judgments, a time of great sorrow. See, when God is not in a good mood, it brings, it piles up. It causes so much other. That's why we know that the three weeks were always throughout history, times where negative things happen. We mourn because God to be sadder. Once he's sadder, then he's, you know, when, you, when, you, when, when you're down, then bleh. And then as a result of that, we became sadder, and then he becomes sadder. And then and, and this was like a this was like a non-ending spiral. Thank God for the Balshemto, because without that, forget about it. We would have never gotten out of this exile. Comes the holy Balshemto and Hasidus and says, Hey, hold it. You gotta stop a second, stop thinking about yourself, start thinking about your sad father, make him happy. Oh, that changed everything. Because once we can transcend, once we can get past that. And realize, and, and then the Rebbe comes and explains how deep our bodies are. And yes, and realize that, you know, when we cry, we want Mashiach now for our body. It's, it's re- Hashem, our pain is his pain. And therefore, if we can lift ourselves beyond our pain, we're lifting him beyond his pain. If we can lift ourselves to a place of comfort, we can lift him to a place of comfort. Wild stuff. The biggest, biggest, biggest sin we can ever do is treat ourselves to be small, little, insignificant beings. And the biggest blessings we can give ourselves is to know that there is literally, literally 
the way we the way we operate, the way we feel, the way our so bottom line is let's be positive, let's be joyous, let's know Mashiach is coming, let's tell God time of redemption has arrived. Together we can do it. And let's do it now.